Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, I want to talk to you for a little bit. Um, I am uh, a preaching minister here, and in a moment you'll get to hear from our our youth minister slash young adults minister slash makes everything seem cool and exciting minister. Uh, but you will find out he is an excellent, excellent speaker, and he truly loves God's Word, and it's just wonderful. I, I love what was read just a moment ago uh, here from John chapter 20. It's so powerful. But there's something here, I don't know if you noticed, that with the reaction of the people, and when you think about it, what was the reaction? The people who came to the tomb that day. Surprise, shock, right? You didn't have anybody standing out with posters that said, welcome back. The apostles are not camped out inside the tomb waiting for Jesus to come out and give them their next orders. In fact, the only people who were there that morning were these women. And they had spices. And they were going to put it over Jesus' body because that's what you do to dead people, not ones that rise from the dead. And yet, what's, what's so fascinating about this whole thing is they run back to, to Peter and John, and, and they tell them that there is this empty tomb. And I don't know if you caught what she said about the tomb. She says, they have taken the Lord, and we don't know where they put him. In other words, she doesn't say, the tomb is empty, he's alive. They said, somebody's taken him. Peter and John run to the tomb. And, and I, I find it comedic relief in all of this because once they get to the tomb, or when John is writing this, and he writes in the third person, he says that he beat, <laughs> he beat Peter to the tomb. He outran him, Right? And as you continue on, we, we find it again. And he goes on and he talks about his Olympic time in getting there. And then he gives another jab at Peter. And, and he says, I saw the empty tomb and I believed. He doesn't say Peter believed. He just says, I believed. And yet John will also go on to say, it, we didn't understand the scriptures about the resurrection. And, and it's just fascinating to us because Jesus, if you read the Gospels of Jesus, you, you realize that Jesus talked to them about his death and about his resurrection, and they just didn't get it. And we look at this and we think, are they dumb? But you've got to understand, it's just like us, when we've been taught a certain way our whole lives, it's hard to think anything else. And their concept of a Messiah was the Messiah was to come into this world He's coming like gangbusters. He's going to destroy their enemies, which would have been the Romans. That they would have been given back the land. There would be justice and peace that finally rules. But what happened? The Messiah King dies by the hands of the Romans. From that whole bogus trial, if you read the trial about Jesus, it's just bogus. You realize justice hasn't prevailed. They certainly are not feeling at peace. And they go home. But resurrection would change everything. Everything. 
And that's why we look into 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. It's written up, up from the guy who got outrun. <laughs> it's written by that guy. He also co-authored the book of Mark that we're going to begin next week. And something else you may not know about Peter, probably if you've read anything at all, you realize this guy made a lot of mistakes. And yet what we find from the gospel accounts to the book of Acts, which is the continuation of what happens after resurrection, we find something totally different than what we read before the resurrection about Peter and after the resurrection. In this book of 1 Peter, he's writing to suffering Christians. And they are in this area of the book of 1 Peter tells us of, of Cappadocia and Galatia, Pontus, Bithynia, and then all of this area here is what's known as Asia. This is a good chunk of the Roman Empire. And what's happening at this particular time is Christians are being persecuted. They're being ridiculed. They, uh, some of them have lost their businesses. There were those who were beaten. Some have even were martyred, they were put to death. And, and, and what was happening here was just, it was like, it, that's hard to understand too, isn't it? Why would those who now come follow Jesus, why are they going through these things? And when you read the book of 1 Peter, he talks about those who are struggling with these various trials. He's talking about those who are dealing with harm and sufferings and accusations. There's all kinds of rumors going on about the Christians. Did you know this? One of them was that they were cannibals. They believe that them, you know, the bread that we are going to partake of in a moment, they believe that they were cooking babies into the bread. They were called atheists. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, because they didn't believe in the many gods of the Roman Empire. And, and that included Caesar as being Lord. And the world, they really did not know what to do with these people. Because at one time, they had been involved in these pagan rituals and which was filled with all kinds of immorality, but all of a sudden they're not doing this. And the people who had known them their whole lives, they don't understand why they stopped doing this. They do not give their allegiance to Caesar as Lord any longer. Now, they were not rebellious like some of the, uh, you know, those in that particular day and time, people who rebelled against the Roman Empire, rebelled against Caesar. In fact, what we find is the Christians are taught to respect everyone. That included the emperor. They just wanted to gather in their communities and worship God and tell people about this excitement of the God who created heaven and earth, that he has come down and he has died for our sinfulness that he truly is Lord. So, here they are. They're looked at with suspicion. They're being dealt with in, in horrible ways. And Peter is going to write this letter to that area where they are suffering so much. And it's like, what do you tell these people? What do you tell a group of people, Christians, who are suffering so awful, 
for the, for the cause of Jesus Christ, what do you tell them? And what we find is the very first thing, get this, the very first thing is he tells them that Jesus is alive. 1 Peter 1.3 is our main text. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now listen to this. He has given us a new birth into a living hope. Get that. Living hope through, here's where the living hope, this is where it comes from, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, he doesn't say, the first thing he doesn't say is, okay, listen, you know you're suffering, but you're going to be resurrected from the grave. And that certainly is a part of, of Jesus' resurrection. But the first thing he says is, Jesus rose from the grave. And Peter says that this living hope, this is what I'm giving you. You need hope, so I'm giving you this living hope. And he says it comes through this new birth. And it's like, what does that even mean? And it's not something he came up with. It was something that Jesus spoke about to this guy by the name of Nicodemus. He was a religious leader in the day. And he says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he talked about being born of the water and of the spirit. And Nicodemus is just, you know, you can imagine. What does that mean? But when Peter uses this, when Jesus is using this, he means that there is such a transformation that occurs in our lives that it's like we are a whole new human. We completely change the way we think and the way we live. It's powerful. Jesus' resurrection does not change your circumstances. Listen to this. This is so important. The resurrection of Jesus does not change your circumstances. It changes you. And I think a lot of times we get discouraged with being a follower of Jesus or even wanting to be a follower of Jesus because it's like, well, I see Christians and, and I see that their lives are upside down at times. And I just don't. Listen, it's not about changing your circumstances. It's about changing you. Eventually, those circumstances will change in Christ. But sometimes we just get discouraged. Suffering is not limited to the people of the world. Who is Peter writing to? People who are suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. And there are people out here in our world today who are martyred in other countries especially because they believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. And our world continues to become more and more antagonistic against Christianity. And sometimes I think it's just they don't know what to do with us. And we see churches that are being vandalized. There are churches where there have been mass shootings. There have been hate crimes. Being transformed isn't this pie-in-the-sky living. It's not that, okay, hey, I'm a Christian. Everything in my life is great. No. 
The people that Peter was writing to were hurting, and what they needed was hope. You see, we're totally different than the animals. The animals, they don't wake up in the morning and think, well, what's the meaning of life? Right? They, they don't, you know, get up and get on social media to try to build up their self-esteem. What they do is they hunt, they eat, and they rest. They don't question, well, I wonder why, why God would allow this, these bigger animals to chase me. <laughs> because they're animals, but we're not animals. And we need meaning, and we need purpose. We need something to put our hope in. We put our hope in the fact that he lives. He lives. He lives. From their Austrian home and transported into one of the darkest moments in human history, the Holocaust. And of all of his family and his loved ones and people that he cared about the most, only he and his aunt would survive after two and a half years of being prisoner in a concentration camp. Victor lost everything. And, and he talks about his experience in the camp throughout this book. He talks about his experience in the field. And even, because he's a psychologist, he talks about uh, the, the mental battle that he faced. And he talks about how he was able to come out of the Holocaust, out of the tragedies, how he was able to survive. And he says that the reason was by staying true to his calling. You see, he was, uh, he was a therapist, a psychologist before this. And he would go out and work in the fields and work in the camps, whatever they were forcing him to do. But then when he made his way in the evenings back to his hut or wherever they were staying, he would have these little sessions, these therapy sessions with his fellow prisoners. He would pick up scraps of paper from wherever he could find them and he'd keep notes. And he would hide those notes in his mattress so he could keep them, so he could log his, his sessions. I mean, this guy was a total nerd. He was a scholar and it's what kept him alive. And, and Frankel, he talks about the uniqueness of the Holocaust. And he says that the uniqueness of the Holocaust is not just the mass scale by which it took place, but the uniqueness of the Holocaust is, was its ability to take a series of events that are actually going to happen to most of us and condense them into a very short amount of time. You see, Frankel says that the mo most people, most of us, we will experience sometime in our life a loss of our home. We'll lose our home or our roots. That will eventually fade. Many of us, we will lose our family, our loved ones. Either they'll pass away or they'll fade away over time. Many of us will lose our status, our dignity, whatever it might be, our career. We'll lose that eventually. Many of us will lose our ability to move freely. As we age, our bodies will begin to stiffen up and it will become painful. We'll lose our health, as I know many in this room are experiencing. And yes, all of us at some point will experience death. 
But the uniqueness of the Holocaust is that unlike us, which we experience all of these things over a lifetime, the victims experienced over a couple of years or a couple of months. And Frankel, he considers this. He spends a lot of time in his book and in other writings. He considers this and asks the question, how were people who, who survived such devastating, un, unspeakable, unimaginable events, how were they able to come out of this in whatever way? And what he, what he concludes, the common denominator of all the people that, that he witnessed, that he talked to, that were able to survive a concentration camp, there was a common denominator, and it's exactly what Peter talks about. It's exactly what Tracy has already introduced to us. It was hope. People who were able to take a series of events, no matter how devastating they might be, they were able to take those series of events and fit them into some greater story, realizing that their life has a purpose beyond the suffering that they might be experiencing in that moment. And he, he writes this, he catalogs it, and he, he, he shows the journey of hope in people's lives that were in the camps. He talks about that there was a group of people who lost all sense of hope at the very beginning, just immediately. There was no meaning to life. There was no meaning to their suffering. Everything was meaningless. And he talks about how these people, they seem to grow cold. Their eyes seem to glaze over it, and nothing mattered. And he says they, they, they literally became like animals, like beasts, like a dog protecting his food and not afraid to become violent towards other people. And Franco said that it's because they lost hope for anything greater. And then there was this whole other layer of people who, who had hope in the beginning but lost it over time. And he says that as this, process, as this process happened, as they lost hope, their heart and their mind, it grew callous. It grew apathetic towards people, towards their circumstances, towards themselves. And he says that this kind of psychology, it actually has a way of increasing people's demise. He talks about a man who was dead set that the war would be over after six short months. In fact, he was so set on that timetable that he had a date in mind that the war would be finished by. But as the weeks and the months passed by, this man's, and the, and the war had no signs of slowing down, this man's health rapidly decreased. And it was actually the very next day after the date that he had set that he passed away. And Frankel says he lost hope. And then there was a whole other group of people, a group that Frankel associated himself with, a group of people that were able to look beyond their circumstances and see some greater purpose that held on to some kind of hope. And Frankel says that this kind of hope, it has a way of transcending our current suffering, our current pain, our current circumstances that we're in. He talks about a baker whose simple hope was just to bake again. He wanted to stand in his bakery. He wanted to feel the dough as he kneaded it under his knuckles. He wanted to smell the sweet smell of bread cooking in the oven. He wanted to see the joy of someone's face as they bit into a warm loaf of bread. He just wanted to bake again. He talks about a musician who just wanted to sit at a piano again, who wanted to feel the weight of the keys below, below his fingers, who wanted to hear the bells and the chimes of music that he was creating. And Franco would say that these are real hopes. 
These are hopes that people could hold on to that despite their circumstances, despite whatever what they were going through, their captors could not take it from them. It was a hope that couldn't be shaken. And what Frankel has his thumb on in his story and his experience, what he has his thumb on is exactly what Peter assumes about the human condition in our reading. See, the first thing that Peter, as Tracy said, the first thing that, the, that Peter turned these suffering Christians' attention towards is what? It's hope. A living hope. A hope that was opened up to us on Easter morning when instead of a body that was beginning, beginning to decompose, that was wrapped in linen, standing there, that tomb was empty. The body was gone and that body was interacting with people face to face. It was talking. Breath was in its lungs again. And, and Peter believes, he fully believes that a hope in a resurrected Jesus, in an empty tomb, that kind of hope has a living and a dynamic power. That that kind of hope has a way of changing the kind of human that you are. And Frankel would agree. That hope, simple hope, has that kind of power. So why does Jesus' death and resurrection, why does it give me that type of hope? A hope that is unshakable, no matter my circumstances, no matter the pain that I'm experiencing. And to answer that question, we have to turn to what we're about to turn to when we take the bread and the cup. So I'm going to go ahead and ask if you're one of our servers for the Lord's Supper, if you want to go ahead and stand and begin making your way to the back and preparing that meal for us. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and by Peter, and by the rest of his disciples, the rest of his followers, he experienced a condensed version of what we all experience in life. A suffering of some kind that will eventually lead to our death. Jesus even experienced a condensed version of what Frankel experienced. See, in one night and in one day, Jesus would lose all of his loved ones. His family, his friends, his closest followers, they would desert him. When things got tough, they were gone. In, in one moment, Jesus would lose all form of dignity and status in his community. He would be arrested, he would be convicted, he'd be spit on, he'd be slapped around. In, in, in one moment, Jesus would lose all ability to move freely without pain. He'd be tortured, he'd be flogged. And on a Roman cross... Jesus would also lose his life, and he would die. So why did he do that? Why did Jesus knowingly walk into that? And he talks about that in the last meal that he shared with his disciples, in a meal that we try to replicate and meditate on weekly here at the Vero Beach Church of Christ, a meal in which he gathered everybody he loved around and he took a bread, piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, in the same way, my body is going to break. And I'm doing it for you. And then he would, he would take a cup. 
And he'd say, in the same way that the liquid in this cup, in the same way that it's poured out, my blood, the thing that gives me life, it's going to be poured out for you. I'm doing it for you. And Jesus believed. Jesus believed that as he stared into the dark night of his suffering, he believed that he was staring into the human condition. Jesus, Jesus believed that he was binding himself to the human condition. He was taking into himself all of the violence and the hate that we show to each other, all of the pain and the suffering that we experience in this life, all the ways that we act like animals to each other. He was collecting them into himself. He took it to the cross and he allowed them to kill him. So why did he do that? Why did he do that for me? And he explained that the best way that he could, through his teachings and through his life. He taught and he showed that this is the essence of God, that this is the essence by which I am trying to live into, and it's the essence by which all of us are called into. It's love. Suffering, sacrificial love for the well-being of another person. Jesus loved this world. Jesus loved this world. In the state that it's in, he loved it. And he loved it so much that he was willing to take on his own suffering and his own death to save it. Jesus became what we are so that one day we could become what he is. See, that's why the empty tomb is for all of us. It's not my personal destiny that is unlocked after death. Right? It's the future of humanity that walked outside of that tomb. And it spotlights for us, every single one of us, where our real hope is. Not our false hopes. Right? Not the things or the places that we put our hope in that are eventually going to let us down or let other people down, but a real hope. A hope that is real and a hope that's unshakable. And so as we take the bread and the cup this morning, may we think, may we meditate, may we identify where our real hope is. Not the hope we have in a person, not the hope we have in an idea, not the hope we have in a thing that are going to let us down, that are going to tear us apart. The question is, have we put our hope in a place that is secure, that is eternal, That is unshakable. And that's the question that Peter puts to us this morning. And so as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the Lord's Supper, let's use Peter's words as our prayer. Will you pray with me? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, it can never spoil, and it can never fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer 
You may have griefs of all kinds and all trials, but these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is greater and worth more than gold, which perishes through refined by fire, that the genuineness of your faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Amen.